Welcome to the 13th edition of our podcast series, Talking Data, which offers timely insights into macro data and its impact on the economy and markets. I'm Kristen Radish of Arbor Research and Trading. I will be today's moderator. Our podcast features Jim Bianco of Bianco Research and Ben Breitholtz of Arbor Data Science. Today's topics are inflation, bond issuance, and the bond vigilantes. Ben, we're going to get started with you today. Um, first, U.S. CPI disappoints away from core commodities. Are tips break-evens attractive right now? Yeah, uh, so the, the issue here is that the and the big inflation that we saw over the summer is kind of fizzled. A lot of it had to do with lack of inventory. We saw it heavy in you know used car prices recently. The Mannheim you know, used car price index actually dropped last month for the first time in a number of months. So some of that's going to fade away and wouldn't be surprised to see CPI core and headline drift towards their long-run averages around 0.1 to 0.2% in a month-over-month basis. So investors um, are still keeping a firm floor uh, at about one and a half percent on a year-over-year basis for CPI. I think that remains pretty firm, um, meaning that if you get out to 10 to 30-year break-evens, that 150 basis point level is attractive. Now that's you know some 20 basis points away from where we are now. So um, we don't necessarily think they're great um, in this current uh, location. I think they could churn sideways to narrow in the near term, you know, looking into year end. Um, and really the question is, you know, do we see real you know, lasting inflation? Are they going to build that in? Because uh, Jim, uh, when we were discussing earlier, and I'll pass it over to him, had a great point um, about the liquidity premium that's been sucked away from, from break-evens that most people don't really think about. Yeah. Um, who's the biggest buyer of tips right now? And the answer is the Fed through quantitative easing. Who's the biggest buyer of nominal interest uh, bonds is the Fed through quantitative easing. So the Fed has their thumb on the scale quite a bit when it comes to tips break evens, and they are probably the biggest influence in setting where those rates are. Um, and you know, you can look at that. The other thing that I find it's interesting too is that another favorite metric that the Fed looks at are the inflation surveys. I know warning, we're going to talk about surveys here. Uh, and uh, University of Michigan consumer. Uh, the conference board, these are the consumer sentiment surveys. They also ask you about inflation. Those are up too, quite a bit. Now, a lot of that, what you're seeing in the consumer confidence sur uh, surveys on inflation, the inflation question is about rising food prices because we did see a big rise in food prices. Nobody went out to restaurants. They all started going to the grocery store to buy food. So food prices went up. And so that's what's driving that, but that's still elevated as well too. But let me turn it over to you, Ben, about back on tips. Um, what are your modeling showing us about the influence that the Fed may be having on the tips break even market? Yeah, so if we decompose and we can do this, uh, you know, a simple way, just with some nice, you know, kind of fancy regression models, or we can use some of the academic studies and and really let's break up tips into the liquidity premium, kind of a risk premium, um, and then also the true inflation premium. And when you do that, you can do this many different ways. Um, but they're almost all unanimous that the liquidity premium, the degree of bid ask, um, just in terms of trading tips and the, the ability to, to 
to basically move sizable positions has dramatically improved uh, thanks to the Federal Reserve. And what that results in is that premium has been just, is absolutely collapsed. And in certain cases have actually gone negative uh, across the curve, meaning that liquidity is, is so good. Now that might not necessarily, necessarily be the case. Maybe it's not easy to push a hundred million um, in tips um, through the market, but um, I think it, it goes to show that the inflation premium within a lot of these models and our own modeling is is scant, if you know, at best in terms of actually adding to tips break even. So that's why we're at this critical juncture. Do we get inflation? Can we actually add, you know, create an inflation premium in tips break evens or not? Um, and I, I think Jim is spot on that the, the liquidity issue has been the story now historically, you know, looking back. Um, and now, you know, investors need, um, you know, some real impetus here to keep keep the train going. And I don't think that's going to happen over the next number of months. So count me as one of those that thinks that the inflation story will be noteworthy as we move forward from here. And I'll remind you my argument. My argument is on the supply and the demand side of the equation. On the supply side of the equation, the economy is contracted from last year. Just simply GDP, there's less GDP now than there was a year ago. Gross domestic product. We're producing less product now, so we have a, a reduction of supply. <clears throat> we have fiscal stimulus, we have monetary stimulus, <clears throat> excuse me, and the promise of more fiscal stimulus probably after the election, which is only three weeks away right now. That's going to keep demand higher. Even today, Trump um, tweeted out again. He's in favor of doing more stimulus than even Pelosi wants. And the only thing that's holding him back right now is the Republican Congress. Um, that will stimulate demand. Less supply, more demand, higher prices. That's a fancy way of saying inflation. I'll mention, again, core PCE, uh, uh, personal consumption expenditure. That's the Fed's favorite model uh, metric of inflation. It hasn't been above two and a half since 1993. So if we get it to two and a half at a 27 year high, I will then say, look, it's a 27 year high. We now have some inflation moving maybe towards more if we get to that point as well too. So when I say we're gonna get inflation, I don't wanna be confused with, I think seven or eight or 10% or something like that. We're talking about two and a half on core PCE. When do I think we could see that? I hear you, Ben, that you know the numbers are slowing down a lot because it was an inventory issue that pushed up prices up until a few months ago. But I think once we get the year-over-year -year numbers through the lockdown, and it's uh, you know so April, April, May, May of next year, uh, I think we're going to see much higher core numbers, and I wouldn't be surprised if we start challenging that two and a half percent level. What say you about inflation being noteworthy from here? Yeah, so what I'll say is that I think it's going to be kind of a, a uh, kind of a dead story through a year end, um, and I think the the key here is we've had such a great revival in retail consumer spending. Uh, some of that has you know begun to somewhat slow over the past two to three weeks. Um, some on the lower rung since FBOC payments ended in July. Uh, I think it's going to be uh, imperative that we're able to keep that trajectory going. Um, so it, it can plateau; it just can't uh, crumble. And I think if, if it ever showed any signs of crumbling between now and you know January or February of next year, 
um, that's when I think the story that you're talking about gets pushed even further out into the future. Um, but getting back to it, I still think um, with the firm floor that investors have put in place at one and a half percent year over year, there's an attractive level in terms of owning that within a portfolio to hedge against this potential scenario next year. So I don't, I wouldn't rule out tips break evens by any means um, uh, in terms of actually helping diversify. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. And I would also just to finish up on this section, just say, I do think that the inflation story is going to be the story of the next year. Either it comes back with a $3 trillion deficit, which would be my bet, again, two and a half, not some major number, or doesn't. And if it doesn't come back, I think that that's going to be a, a real story as well, too. We'll have to see. But let's move on. Kristen, what's our next topic? Jim, why don't you discuss um, specifically the Fed? We talked about the Federal Reserve. Is it going to keep? It's keeping a tight leash on volatility. Issuance will be ballooning, but is this quantitative easing forever? Yeah. So um, we had some news yesterday. Um, Fed Governor Randy Quarles spoke virtually at a conference for the University of California, Irvine, and I'm going to read you his quote. It may be the sim. It may be there is a simple macro fact that the treasury market being so much larger than it was a few years ago, much larger than it was a decade ago, and now really much larger than even a few years ago, that the sheer volume may have outpaced the ability of the private market infrastructure to support stress of any sort there. And then he went on to say that the Federal Reserve will probably be doing QE or some version of intervention in the treasury market like we've seen forever permanently as well too. This reminded me of the old line, there are no bad bonds, there's only there's only bad prices. Um, Randy Quarles, I guess, hasn't learned that, that lesson, that you know the private market will sell your bonds. You may not like the price, but it will sell your bonds. He's basically saying that without the Fed, you won't like the price, we, the Fed, won't like the price of bonds, so we're going to stay in there, continuing to purchase bonds, QE forever, and I think, by definition, suppressing interest rates by taking out any kind of liquidity premium because they're going to be there, or any kind of a uh, <clears throat> of other kind of a, a stress point premium in the marketplace as well too. I'm going to come back to our earlier point. Will this work? Yes, until or unless we get inflation. The, you know, the Fed can play in these markets. They can set the interest rates in these markets. They can do a lot of anti-capitalist things in markets that would make a lot of people shake their head if it doesn't have a perverse outcome. But if there's a perverse outcome like inflation, then what the Fed is doing is bad. And if it's bad, the market's going to demand that the Fed stop it. Ben, what's your thoughts on, on this? So I think the Fed is is uh, you know underneath the surface here gearing up for not yield curve control but for actually extending purchases further further out the curve. So we've all watched the curve steepen, the uh, Treasury curve steepen. Um, you know, particularly look at like fives, thirties, 
And um, with that being said, I think all the heavy issuance and the potential tilt of risk is look is looking you know, bearish to higher yields, lower prices for treasuries, and that's exactly how investors are positioning. So uh, one of my favorite metrics is looking at swaptions. Let's look for you know what's the premium for protection against a negative 25 versus a positive 25 basis point move on 30 years, and that's tilted just uh, heavily um, to the bearish side. So I think that the markets, like you're saying, are thinking that you know yields could rise and all this issuance if you know even if we just get a modicum just a small amount of inflation we could see um yields rise and they want to be hedged for that so um on the flip side you know the, the fed's going to want to compress any type of uh, situation where the long end gets out of control um and i think the big pain trade potentially if it did happen was if everything kind of hits the fan and there's also no true rush to safety to treasuries uh, which hasn't happened uh, really since March and April, the pain trade would be lower yields because everyone's getting positioned uh, for these for this higher yields. But that lends to to Jim's point, your point, that uh, without the Fed maybe purchasing and even with the you know the guidance to purchase, without that, yields would be creeping higher. We're, we're exactly where we should be in terms of the cycle uh, based on past global slowdowns, and yields should be rising, and that's typically what investors allow to happen. So um, if that doesn't happen, it means someone's compressing them and that's you know, likely the Fed. And I think they could continue to do that. I wouldn't be surprised the next two months to see them extend purchases um, out the curve. You, you know, it, and as far as um, them being aggressive and out the curve too, <clears throat> their support of the credit markets becomes kind of an interesting aspect too. The Fed, with a lot of fanfare back in March, announced a program to buy corporate bond ETFs and high yield ETFs, not the high yield bonds, but the ETFs. Uh, and they also per said a, a big fanfare on a per program to buy investment grade corporate bonds. Uh, they took two months to roll those programs out, but they're out now and they're there. As far as the ETFs go, it's now been almost two months since the Fed has bought another ETF. Uh, they bought some early. I think they bought like $12 billion in total or something like that, but haven't bought any in like six or seven weeks. They've been very aggressive in uh, their uh, purchases, at least initially, of corporate bonds, and they've slowed that down too. But bear in mind that the programs are in place now, and it would just take 10 minutes and one phone call to ramp them back up. I'm reminded of the Famous line from the ECB president, Mario Draghi, from July of 2012, when we had the sovereign debt crisis and we had Italy and Spain and Portugal and Greece trading at 8, 9, 10% yields. He said that they would do whatever it takes to solve this crisis. And what did he actually do? Nothing. He just said, whatever it takes. And that was enough that the market actually compressed its yields. He never actually had to follow through and do anything uh, after that as well, too. And I feel like the, now that these programs are in place and it's one phone call away from purchasing them, they maybe don't have to do those purchases, but nobody wants to go against the Fed. Remember that on Wall Street, the big battle cry, Bob Michael, JP Morgan Investment Management, Bob, what do you think about corporate bonds? Was he was once asked on Bloomberg TV. I want to co-invest with the Fed. How could you go wrong? Buy the bonds that the Fed's buying. Because if the market tanks, they're going to print money and make sure they go back up. I'm in with the Fed, is basically what he said. 
He's been right. That's been a very good strategy to work with. And I think that that is permeating a lot of these markets. So the Fed supported the credit markets. My point is it's there. Even if they don't buy, it's just the threat is good enough for right now. Well, heck, look at um, so look at triple C versus triple B OAS, which was blown out to you know 1,500 basis points um, in March. Basically peaked, I think, on March 23rd when with the SMCCF getting announced. Um, that's compressed all the way down to around 713, maybe 712 basis points at this moment. And I think that it's going to be interesting as we get close to the long run average for that spread, which is somewhere around maybe 650, 660 basis points. Um, you know, it's kind of like a you know mission accomplished for the Federal Reserve. And uh, same thing we can say for implied volatility. If you look at LQD and you know, investment grade uh, corporate credit, or, or you look at and HYG at their implied volatilities. Those have also compressed. If you look at you know on the three month basis, it's right around nine percent. So that extra premium in in vol that high yield had is completely gone. So another check mark for the you know for the Federal Reserve. So I would agree. I think that um, you know the Fed could always come in really quickly and help um, you know basically quell markets. But I think we're getting now to the point where spreads are back to long run averages, especially in the junkiest end of the credit market. Vol is so low and now so interconnected between high yield. Um, and investment grade debt that now is the point at which we're going to start to get some um, maybe a higher dispersion and I think that's when things will get a little more interesting for credit investors moving forward it doesn't mean that we're going to blow out um, doesn't and I think Jim's right that the Fed will swoop in um, if they have to but as we get to these kind of critical points um, I think that we'll see kind of a bottom in volatility and maybe a little bit of a kick up dust up in dispersion especially if we get a little bit of weakness in the economy. I'll just conclude this section by reminding you all this works and it works well and we could send all the Fed chairmen and governors to Oslo to give them Nobel Prizes in economics as long as there isn't an adverse outcome like inflation. All this works great. But you get some kind of adverse outcome like inflation and the perception in the marketplace that these, these programs are making it worse and then it all goes sideways. And, and that's what I think my fear is we'll see if that happens. Kristen, how about our last topics? Uh, what's that? Thanks, Jim. So, Ben, I'm going to turn it over to you to talk about the quest for safety or safe havens. Will U.S. Treasuries offer diversification and where are investors to turn? So that's been difficulty, you know, really since uh, April or so. If you look at flows, treasuries as a, you know, as an asset class have really been not loved. Uh, there hasn't been that much money thrown into it. All the money going into fixed income is going into what Jim was just talking about, which is investment grade credit, you know, munis, MBS, TIPS, and so on. So it's been the 60-40 portfolio, of course, is under, is under major scrutiny. Of course, every time we seem to do this, it seems to go on to its best year um, ever. So we'll see what happens. But I think with what we just discussed, the, the environment where Everyone's getting positioned kind of bearishly on treasuries, but you still have the Fed that's going to keep a leash on volatility. Treasuries are going to be a tough sell as, as a diversification tool. And there's some inkling or some rebound right now that we're seeing in the correlation between treasuries, treasury yields, and the S&P 500, for example. I think that uh, on a rolling one-month one basis is almost back to 0.45 or 0.5. 
meaning that they're kind of moving a little bit more together, which isn't what you want to see. Um, uh, so you kind of, you know, where you lose on bonds, you're also losing on equities. So, you know, where can you put money? Where can you really turn? Um, and I, I think that that's why we've seen such heavy flows into things like gold, uh, oddly enough. You know, usually I'm not a big proponent or fan of gold, but within a lot of our models, um, it, based on what Jim just said too, with inflation uh, and also any kind of economic policy uncertainty, I think some of the precious metals do actually somewhat make sense and will offer some of that diversification opportunity. And the dollar has been so negatively correlated to that. And that's been kind of the, the outlier. Um, the dollar's volatility and its return relative to other asset classes has been um, pretty negatively correlated, if not non-correlated. Uh, so I think that space remains somewhat attractive. The other one is just, you know, for those that are willing to take the risk further out the curve, uh, not the curve, further out uh, the risk spectrum and credit, you know, going out to double Bs, triple Cs, that's where all the fun's been for the most part. I think still holding a, you know, a larger amount of cash uh, kind of makes a certain amount of uh, sense in this environment. So let me um, challenge the premise of the question too about diversification. In a disinflationary and a deflationary environment, which is what we've been in since the late 90s, you tend to get assets with, low, uh, with negative correlations to each other. Of course, the big one is bonds and stocks. They seem to prices move opposite each other, which is what's made the 60-40 portfolio such a gigantic winner. One of those legs is always going up, depending on what kind of environment you are in. A bad environment, treasuries rally, a good environment. Your risk rallies like stocks. You get to an inflationary environment. Yeah, I'm Johnny OneNote on this podcast today. You get into an inflationary environment, and what we found from previous inflationary environments is all of the correlations are positive. Stock, bonds, commodities all go up together. They all go down together. And uh, then people say, well, how do I diversify? The answer is you don't. Your money goes to heaven is basically what happens. Or you wind up um, you wind up making money if you're on the right side of the trade. So this whole premise of there has to be a negatively correlated asset to equities that I could put in my portfolio to offset it is premised on the fact that we are in a disinflation to deflationary environment where something is moving up, but you get into an inflationary environment. And yes, we're not in it now, but maybe the fear is it's coming. Then everything goes up and down together. And there is no diversification, if you want to think about it in those terms, um, <laughs> other than something like gold or, or cryptos or something that most people kind of frown upon as well. So I would just kind of just throw out the premise here is predicated on a certain type of environment, which we are still in. And the question is a disinflationary or deflationary environment, will we still be in it by the end of next year? We'll see. You know where I stand on it. And I think that's why, uh, so currencies, you know, Forex vol is 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 so much higher than everything. Um, uh, and I think that's, I think there's an interest, there's been a shift over the past few months from potentially, you know, finding that diversification in treasuries and actually trying to look into the Forex market to a certain capacity. And I think that's something we'll continue to see. Now that's a difficult, you know, kind of uh, you know, trading currencies and um, dealing with all the different components, geopolitical and inflation and so on is, is not easy, but I think we're seeing uh, increased interest in that space. I, I, I would not be shocked to see 
more and more uh, you know portfolios and individual individuals turn to some kind of forex overlay um, so to speak, in order to get that diversification. And that'll be more of a sign of the frustration that treasuries are either range bound or what you just said, Jim, that they are now not, you know, not uh, offering the diversification, the protection they have really for decades um, for, you know, for most traditional portfolios. Yeah. Let's wrap this up, Kristen. Yeah, I was going to ask if each of you could just give a, give your final thoughts for the day. Uh, I'll go. I'll go first. Um, in 2020 is an, uh, an unusual year on a lot of different levels, from politically to economically to socially, on down the line. And really, the question becomes: Is it marking some kind of a change, or will there be a change as we move into 21 and 22? And that's really the question. And I think the answer is yes. And then I think the answer is what. That's where it becomes a little bit more difficult. And that's kind of where my thinking has always been, is that I think that there is going to be some kind of a change because we've seen it with fiscal spending and with monetary policy and with the contraction in the economy. But there also might be some other changes as well, too. So I, I, I just want to point that out, that that's where I'm, I'm at, is that there, we're at the precipice of some kind of a change. And yeah, I mean, I might be wrong on the inflation part, but I think when you go back and look at by the end of 22, we're going to say, yeah, a lot of things changed. We may have got right what changed, but I don't think we need to say, okay, let's look back the last three years and say that's going to look like that the next three years. Such a big event, big events have happened this year. I think we're going to see some bends in some of these trends. Ben? Yeah, so I think uh, you know inflation. I think will be muted uh, through through the through year end, and uh, you know we'll see if if Jim's right for you know for next year. Um, you know, obviously a lot of the proper uh, you know things are kind of stacking up to produce inflation. Uh, we'll see if we get it, but I still think you know seeking inflation protection makes sense at the right levels. I still like 150 basis points further out the curve. I think that the Fed will, uh, you know, move to some kind of, um, you know, extension of purchase activity and try to basically squash the yield curve to a certain extent. I wouldn't be shocked to see that. And it, I, I, Jim and I were kind of agreeing in our last podcast that we still think, you know, there'd be some higher treasury vol uh, going toward year end, uh, but not by a substantial degree. Um, and I think that investors are going to increasingly try to seek, you know, say other safe havens than um, than treasuries. Again, I think the forex markets are going to become more and more of a popular venue for that. And uh, so we'll see what happens. Um, you know, a lot can change now with the election um, and everything we're getting into with COVID here into year end. So um, exciting, scary times, at the, you know, at the same time. Well, thank you, Ben. And thank you, Jim, for joining us today. We really appreciate uh, your thoughts and comments. And thank you to our audience for joining us. Uh, be on the lookout for a conference call next week with Jim. And as a reminder, Arbor Research and Trading is an institutional research and brokerage firm that produces innovative research across a broad range of global fixed income, equity, currency, and commodity markets. Bianca Research and Arbor Data Science are our two most prominent research offerings. For further information on Arbor Research, Bianca Research, and Arbor Data Science, please contact Gus Handler at gus.handler at arborresearch.com.